Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. (laughs) Would you stand for the reading of the word? If you're brand new to this whole church thing, we have this reverence towards the Bible. We don't expect everybody to have that as they're beginning their journey with Jesus. Maybe you have a complicated relationship with the scriptures. We totally understand. Um, But for centuries, this is what the first church has done. We've come together and we've given generously. We started our week by singing. Singing is this way that we remind ourselves, right, in so many ways who's on the throne. And we worship, we pray for one another. We can't do all the things of church on a Sunday morning. But we can do a good chunk of them and do some of those things that lay the groundwork for the week that's to come. And one of the most important things, the reason why um, the way this building was designed was there's this elevated, um, I, don't, I can't remember the actual proper name for it. We just call it the crow's nest. Um, <laughs> just not the proper name for it. Um, but this is why this was elevated. This room is designed because we want to come to the communion. needs to be at the center. Christ is in some way mysteriously present with us when we take communion. And the word is elevated. And so that's why um, we like to, on the regular, stand for the reading of the word. Because we're told these are the words of life. Amen? Would you read with me? Hosea should be on the screen. Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, I got my coffee a bit late this morning, and... um, yeah, it just was a heavy end of the week, and um, so I just ask for your mercy and grace uh, on a Sunday that I feel like I should be going at like 110 miles an hour as we're sharing some vision for the new year and talking a little bit about our, our uh, future builders offering and our prayer focus for the coming year. Um, so some of you are really excited that I'm dulled, and others of you, I apologize. Um, I did want to just draw your attention to one more thing before I jump in. Um, We put these, uh, we've been talking about scripture this month in our home churches and in our teachings, the importance of it, the value of the word, um, and these regular practices that for all those that count sanctuary their home, we want to invite you to. Spending uh, 15 minutes a day in the scriptures, preferably a stretch goal is doing this before you touch your phone in the morning or the last thing you do. Uh, encouraging people to move into deeper study in the word. Um, And so for those that are like brand new to either faith or really brand new to exploring the scripture, we put a really simple reading plan together. Um, And you can find these in the back on the table with our last two practices, the prayer and scripture practice. I want to encourage you to grab one of those or if you have a friend you know that would really appreciate something like this, it would be a gift to do that. Um, This Sunday is sort of a Vision Sunday part two. Uh, And I say that because... Um, we are going to share, uh, you actually already have in your hands, some of the initiatives that we are going to be focused on in, in this season of giving. Every year, to accelerate the vision and to build the future, the things that God's called us to do, we invite 
uh, all of us to give above and beyond our normal tithes towards some specific things. And we invite everybody then after this in January into a season of focused prayer and fasting for those things. So it's like December, inviting everybody in, and on December 10th is going to be the day that we really like do kind of all officially give together, though you can give leading up to that and give after that. Um, and, and so this month, we are today, I want to just lay a little bit of the groundwork for what we see coming. And I want to begin in a funny sort of way before we jump into that passage today. I found um, a journal by a man named Francis Wayland. Anyone know who Francis Wayland is? Yeah, he's the Wayland Square guy. He did a little bit more than found a square. But um, I live in that neighborhood, um, and as somebody who has, over the last couple years, found myself enamored, borderline obsessed with reading about what God has done in the city of Providence over the last few hundred years. Google Books is a magic little thing. I've shared a lot of these stories from the front, and I'll continue to, I'm sure, in years to come. Because um, revival or awakening or spiritual hunger or fire, like all that like spreads on the embers of stories like this. Stories we read about in scripture, stories we read about in the distant past of the great saints, and also stories that we read about just a couple hundred years right on the ground that you were walking on. There's something about bearing witness to what God has done that stirs our own faith. So if I were just going to kind of boil down what I'm hoping to, if you were to like sit down with me for coffee and I were going to give this message like, hey, I missed the service on Sunday. What was the main gist of the Sunday? I only had a few minutes. It would simply be this. And I give, you know, a handful of these throughout the year. I just want to fire you up all over again. I just want to fire you up all over again. I think in our day and age, the push towards apathy towards a, a low-grade despondency to our faith, like that temptation to move in that direction is greater than ever. And we're going to talk a little bit today about rowing and, or sowing and reaping. And if you don't like the harvest that you're getting in your life, what does that mean you need to do? You need to sow different seeds. And I think as a community, we're longing for more harvest. And I know many of you who I get to meet with throughout the week as individuals, you're looking at the harvest of your life. I know this is language you don't use a lot in like an urban area like Providence. But you're looking at the harvest of your life and you're like continuing to harvest apathy and exhaustion and low-grade anger and anxiety. And this should trigger us to plant different seeds. And this passage in Hosea does something powerful, I think. It's a powerful prayer for this moment. But I led with Francis Whalen because as I was reading his journal, Francis Whalen, by the way, the president of Brown University, a pastor, and functionally then a revivalist. How awesome would that be if we had one of those right now in Providence? Imagine the president of Brown University regularly wanting to come and preach at our church, stirring revival, in the city. Francis Whalen has this, a couple memoirs that were sort of assembled of his different journals. And there is this one story that got turned into um, a tract, like got turned into 
um, something that was spread around to encourage people in the way of Jesus. And the tract was called One Honest Effort. Will you say One Honest Effort? One Honest Effort. Or The College Student. So it's also a Bright Eyes album cover. Deep cut for all those that... In the year 1835, the son of a minister became a student at Brown University at Brown Uni at Providence, Rhode Island. At 12 years of age, this, by the way, I'll give you a time frame here. This is 1840. This is 20 years after the first really great revival that ever hit Providence hit. And it is 10 years away from what was the businessmen's revival in New York that spread like wildfire and blew up Providence in the most amazing way. This is right before the big revival that happened at Brown University, where they saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students within weeks come to know Jesus. Classes shut down and prayer meetings sprouting up all over the quad. This isn't that long ago. In the year 1835, the son of a minister became a student at Brown University. At 12 years of age, he had stood beside the couch of his dying mother, whose voice had often told him of Jesus and whose prayers had constantly ascended for her firstborn. The hand which had led him to the Sunday school was now motionless. With weeping eyes and a sad heart, the son saw the coffin placed in the grave. Two years afterwards, at the age of 14, he entered the college. New scenes engaged the attention of the youthful student. His mother was dead. His father, having relinquished the pastoral care of his church in Boston on account of the failure of his voice, was absent on a missionary tour. More than two years had passed. The last Thursday of February 1838 was observed by the pious students as a day of fasting and prayer in concert with many followers of Christ. A daily prayer meeting was held each evening for one hour. The son of a praying mother and a pious father did not attend, for he was living without hope and without God. So he's at Brown, doesn't go to this gathering. One day, a friend asks him, a fellow student, have you attended any of the prayer meetings? He replied, I have not. The student kindly urged him to attend and added, come with us, and we will try to do you good. Admitting the importance of religion, he determined to comply with the request and was present at the evening prayer meeting. Another pious student accompanied him to his room, and after conversing with him about his sinfulness, I love it's just like casual. What did you do last night? I was conversing with my friend about his sinfulness. And the need for a savior proposed to kneel and pray with him. He felt very deeply and wept. Feeling himself to be a sinner in the sight of God, he resolved to seek the Lord. During the succeeding night, his feelings rather abated, though he did not give up the subject entirely. At one of the prayer meetings, the president, and this is Francis Whalen, urged those that were impenitent to make, quote, one honest effort to meet God. He spoke of their efforts in worldly pursuits in contrast with their neglect of the undying soul. Even if they should be lost, he remarked, they would not regret that they had at least made one effort, he quipped. The remark affected this boy, and he resolved to make one honest effort, and for that purpose set apart the next Sabbath as a day of fasting and prayer. In the morning, the president reached, preached a very solemn discourse in the chapel. The young man retired to his room for prayer. 
Sins long forgotten rose up before him. He reflected upon particular sins and tried to humble himself on account of them, confessing them to God. Doddridge's rise in progress, the Bible, and the earnest appeals contained in the letters received from his absent father were red with many tears. Imagine the scene on the ground in his dorm room. This book about the faith, the Bible, letters from his dad, who was a missionary. He felt that he had indeed sinned against a just and merciful God. He wished to sin no more. He felt willing to do anything, to suffer anything, that he might know God. In the evening, he went to a prayer meeting, which he felt to be the solemn, the most solemn he had ever attended. Distressed on account of his guilt, he asked his friends who had invited him to attend the prayer meetings to come to his room, that he might unburden his feelings to him. He consented, and after giving some directions, prayed with him. When his friend left, he felt that if ever he obtained pardon, he must do it then, for he could put it off no longer. Entering a vacant room, he fastened the door, determining to remain. I think of the psalmist going, I won't let sleep come to my eyes until this becomes my rest, your resting place. He felt that he was just doomed. He saw that there was nothing that he could do to whip himself up. There was left but one hope. He said, quote, the Lamb of God in his journal, the crucified Savior. He prayed for mercy, feeling that though his petitions should not be answered, yet his situation could not be more miserable. No longer did he feel that if one effort did not succeed, he would try no more. For now he resolved never to turn back. But if he perished, to perish asking for mercy, he would cry, only God be merciful to me. The next morning, his mind was calm and tranquil. His first impression was that he could not have been in earnest on the previous day, but his feelings were entirely different from any ever before experienced. He now felt love for Christians. The Bible seemed to be a new book. Prayer had pleasures never known before. Seeking out his most intimate friend, he proposed a walk that he might speak of Jesus and urge him to repent and believe. This is what happens, right? When someone comes to know Jesus, they're like, I gotta tell everybody, I gotta tell everybody. During the day, his joy gradually increased until he felt greater happiness than he had ever before experienced. It was the joy of being with the Lord. At the prayer meeting that evening, he arose to tell his fellow students what God had done for his soul to urge them to make one honest effort a student, now a minister of the gospel, was very much affected and resolved that he too would endeavor to seek a change of heart. Some wept and others sung the praise of the Redeemer. In a few days, a little band of ten students cherished the hope of pardon through the Savior's atoning blood. A young convert's prayer meeting had commenced. So a new like little Bible study and prayer meeting had come together and continued each week until their studies were completed. Six of that little group entered the ministry and among them the subject of this narrative who has often from the pulpit entreated sinners to make one honest effort. A mother's prayer was answered though she did not live to witness the conversion of her son. The absent father reached the shores of his native land within 10 days to be cheered by the tidings of the conversation of his firstborn. 
And soon afterwards, he welcomed his son into the church as a professed disciple of Jesus. The prayers of Christians that more laborers might be sent into the harvest were answered. The conversation of friends and the frequent meetings for prayer were blessed. And then Waylon ends, Christless sinner, will you make one honest effort? Is it not a reasonable request? Don't delay. Life is short and death is certain. If you attend to repent at some future point, why do you go on doing the very deeds for which you expect at some future time to repent? Is not this course inconsistent? Will you not at least make one sincere and honest effort? You need not fear to give up your present enjoyments. If you love Christ, you will no longer desire the lesser pleasures which you now think it a hardship to give up. Resolve now to make one honest effort. This is the word of Francis Whalen. <laughs> Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. The context of this verse is like, a, it's, just the, it's, the, it's the hardest book and the weirdest sermon illustration ever, for those of you who know Hosea. How many of you are familiar with the book of Hosea? We just, just a quick show of hands. Chunk of you. The illustration here in Hosea is um, God uh, has seen just how disobedient his people have been. And unlike how sometimes the Old Testament gets this sort of weird bad rap, like God's really angry in the Old Testament and just really happy in the New is nonsense. And part of, this is one of the great, like, pictures of this, because what we see actually is an image that God gives us, is that in a time of unbelievable spiritual decline, the poor are not being cared for. There is, like, injustice. There is a lack of righteousness in the land. There is idolatry everywhere. There's no trust of God. God's like, let me show you what this is like. And he commissions the prophet Hosea to do a little living sermon. And basically, this is the story that plays out. The prophet loses his wife. His wife starts cheating on him and then finds herself in a prostitution ring. And God commands Hosea to go and buy her back from the prostitution ring and marry her all over again. Awkward sermon illustration. Israel, you are like this woman. And you see a picture of God being like, I love you so much that I will do something for you that you do not in any way deserve. You see a broken-hearted lover. Lest you think of God as anything else other than a broken-hearted lover, when he gets frustrated and when you see wrath in the scriptures, like this is his heart. And what I love about this passage is it's in the midst of a section that is brutal. 
Emily and I were going through some of this study this week, and we were just both kind of overwhelmed with just how much the Hebrew people had jacked everything up and how God was being so clear at the consequences of what you are going to sow because of what you have reaped. And yet there's this verse here that just jumps out in 10 that is this verse of hope. And it is an archetypal type of verse and section that appears in all sorts of prophets throughout the Old Testament. And it basically says, there is something that you can do in a time of spiritual decline, in a time of great apathy and brokenness and ache, there is something you can do. You can sow, you can reap, and you can break up the ground. And then you can seek the Lord and wait. Oftentimes in moments like this throughout history, for those of you, and I know there are many of you in our church who are just fired up, you see the spiritual decline. You have tasted and seen again of just how good God is. Some of you have shaken off the chains of like broken like Christian religiosity and like weird like coffee cup faith. And you are like in a place of such zeal. And often the question comes for those that are like, I want to see, Lord, the things that you've done, that cry of a heart of our church that Sarah just read, happen again. I want to see people saved and rescued. I want to see these kinds of stories like oozing out of Brown University, people coming to know your goodness and your love. A question often arises. And the question is this, how much of this is like God's just going to do what God's going to do? And what do I actually need to do? This is a common question throughout faith, but especially when it comes to a cultural moment like this. Uh, what can we possibly do, and what will just God do? And this verse, I mean, among so many others, but this verse, I think, is such a key and important and critical prayer for our moment because it gives us insight into this. So, reap, break up the ground, and seeking. So if you're taking notes, these are is a really simple sermon from this point on. I want to hit these things. Break up the unplowed ground. Older translations say this, fallowed ground. Can you say fallow ground? It's not an image we use again often in Providence. It's like, what have you been doing? You've been trying to break up the fallow ground of my heart. Like, we don't talk about this very often. Imagine for a minute a young, like a farmer, a farmer who's got a hundred acres. This is the image that Hosea is giving us. So much possibility, a hundred acres worth of possibility for crop. And over time, because of whatever different factors, slowly and slowly, less of the field gets used. And so years go by a lack of tending to different parts, a lack of laborers, lack of vision, zeal, tending to the resources so money don't, doesn't come in, so you're not able to plow up as much ground. And then all you're working with is like 25 acres. If you were to drive by a farm and you see a little corner of the field where there's... <clears throat> all sorts of fruit and crops coming out. And then you look out and you're like, there's no fence there. Gosh, there's so much ground that could be used that's just laying fallow. This is the imagery that we get. 25 acres in 100 farmable acres. 
this potential that is lost. He's reduced the land down, the farmer, to what he can personally manage. But there's all of this potential, and this is what happens so often with God in our lives. We start off seeking Jesus. We start off passionate about knowing him and desiring him. And we say, Lord, you could have my life. And you're singing songs like, I surrender all with such zeal. And we get older. And we go like, oh, yeah, it's cute when you used to sing that song. Or maybe you see, like, high school students now singing songs like that. Or I don't know when you came to Jesus College. And you're like, yeah, that's, that's great. So naive, though. And over the course of times, you begin to get comfortable with your faith. And we let parts of our life that we used to dedicate to seeking God, and we give it over. We give it over to whatever, Netflix or sports or little hobbies. None of these things, by the way, that are bad. They're going to be parts of the sermon. I'm going to sound like some weird legalist that I'm not. I'm not, trust me. They're just not getting the harvest that's possible. And before you know it, all of the spiritual possibility of our life has been reduced to a small and manageable faith. Then if you feel that, I have this like manageable faith. I really don't want it to touch anything else. And we say like, well, it's just a hard season. Oh, this is just what I can do right now. And what God's saying here is you've got more spiritual possibility. Get back the 80 acres that you've lost. There's a bigger harvest in your life. One of the things that I want to communicate today, again, if we were sitting down over coffee and you're like, what's the gist of this today? It's like, I want you to know that this God wants to do more with your life and wants to do more with the life of this church. But he's waiting for us. We need to get to places where we're cultivated. God does not strong arm his people. There are these rare moments where God seems to move in power despite what everybody else wants to have happen. But what he is looking for again and again and again from the first pages of scripture to the very last is are there people who are hungry and open? This is what it is to plow the ground. And so I think one of the things we have to do is learn to break up parts of our life that have gotten hard and gotten left over. And one of the ways we do this, I've spoken on this before, is we have to get discontent. Right? It's one thing for me to get up here and like try to fire you up, but you actually have to have some discontent over the harvest in your life and discontent over the harvest of our church. Not from a discouraging, shame, guilt consumerist place from a this is my family too and I'm part of this and how might we see more is there more ground to plow change happens psychologists say when um, something that they call the crystallization of discontent this is one of my most favorite things I think I've like brought this up in like at least a sermon once a year for the last three years the crystallization of discontent such a beautiful phrase when someone's like, how's your day going? It's like, oh, it's good. What, what happened? Like, ah, oh, my, my discontent crystallized this morning. Right? Like, according to psychologists, it's the moment in the mind and the heart where change is suddenly determined to happen. Think of it like this. It's like when a woman is in an abusive relationship and she stops saying, well, it's only when he drinks. She says, no, 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 I'm being abused. And when she has the courage to go, I am, I am done with this and this has to stop. This is the moment like when someone gets like sucked into like a cult or something and they're like are some weird, really weird tribal conspiracy, like conspiratorial way of thinking. And they're like, yeah, the people are really friendly and like the juice is really good. But like, (laughs) like all of a sudden it's like, wait, I'm in a cult. 
I actually have, like, to come up with the resources and a plan to set myself free. I want to tell you right now, like, do not settle for less than Jesus. And do not settle for less than what Jesus has for you. You need to feed your frustration with faith. You need to lean into it and to wrestle with it. You need to break it up and resolve in your heart. I want my full inheritance, and I will not settle for any less. And so the way we do this is we break up things like our cynicism with hope. I know I've been like beating a dead horse with this one, but man, we live at a time of so much cynicism. It's almost like a cultural virtue in our region or in our world, is it not? Cynicism says like, could God really move? Like, these are dark days for the church, but we need to be reminded of who God is. I've been reading all of this revival history. I begin with that long account with some English you're probably unfamiliar with from Francis Whalen because I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to remember that not that long ago, there was an unbelievable move of God at Brown. I texted James and Jeremiah this morning, the two that I mentioned earlier in the service, who are taking 30 kids up to Young Life, like in earnest, like, guys, give me something. What's going on up there? Not so I have some fun story to tell because I want to stir my faith this morning. God, what are you doing and what can you do and what have you done? I've become low-grade obsessed because of a big brother I have in the faith with this place called the Hebrides, the place where the last great kind of larger move of God happened in Western culture. It was this time where like, it was like a tangible zone of the manifest presence of God fell on a place. 70% of the people who got, like, who came to know Jesus, who were converted, never even made it into the church. Like, they were pulling their horses and carts over in ditches, and they would find men crying for their sins for three days. It was like an unbelievable wave of God. Just take time, if you can, to, like, read a little bit about it these powerful stories of the whole region just being covered. The Welsh revival happens to this young guy who's in his 20s, Evan Roberts. He had the spirit of prayer come on his life. So he's seeking God, calling on the name of the Lord. God gave him a promise of 100,000 people were going to be, um, will come, come to know Jesus in Wales. And this guy just starts seeking God. So 10 or 11 years or so into crying out, he's in his mid-20s, like the power of God hits his life. And they would do these services in these fields with tens of thousands of people would come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't even gotten to the Bible yet, like hadn't even preached anything. And just like there was so much hunger that God just decided, look, I, I'm going to move here. Coal miners were so converted, one of my favorite stories, that the donkeys that used to haul the coal out of the mines had to be retrained because they only responded, their prompts were only to swear words. And so they had like to come up with new instructions because there was this conviction that we shouldn't talk like that amongst some of these coal miners. These miners would sit on their faces and these stories of them just covered in soot and there'd be these rivers of white from the tears in their faces. Police districts were shut down because they simply, there was no crime in some of these towns. The police officers stopped arresting people and they, there's a story in one town where they just started marching bands and had marching band competitions because there was just nothing to do. Just think about this for a minute. 
This is how much transformation happened in a society, and the whole thing kicked off with a young teenage girl in a youth meeting in a hall stood up and boldly declared, I do love the Lord Jesus, and her public witness was the thing that burst a bubble of revival. This tiny little room, half the size of this room. So when you think of encountering God, in a minute we're going to take time to linger and just like sing, I'm going to make room for you, God. Would you break up the ground of my broken tradition? And we're going to sing, set a fire down in my soul. And we're going to create some open space to just like listen and to pray and to come to the altar. Like when we think about encountering God in a deeper way, do we just think about some good feelings? And by the way, I love some good feelings. Love me some good feelings in church. Or are we going, Lord, like this thing that you're moving in me, would you move in our city? Would there be a tangible zone over our city where the manifest presence of God rests? Or every night and every morning, like Philip Gaino of Providence wrote in his journal, people, it was as if people were talking about God. What about when you wake up in the morning and you looked over in your local news feed and there's a news article with a list of some of the most notorious sinners in our city, broken, corrupt politicians, folks who have been like, abusing people and taking advantage of, of, of whatever, fill in the blank, who are converted. Do you have faith for that? Because that's actually what happened in the Welsh revival, in the Wales revival. That's what happened. In the paper regularly would post, did you know that so-and-so, who was this notorious, like, bad fellow in the city, had come to know Jesus? Here's why I share any of these stories. This is partly how I break up the ground in my heart how I combat cynicism with hope. And I remember what God has done. How I push back settling for some sort of lukewarm faith. To break up the hardness that creeps into my life. To break off the cynicism that forms. You've seen God do it before. You know who God uses. You know who God uses when you look back through history. You know who God uses when you begin to read these stories. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's Jenya Welser. <laughs> she, by the way, is the 17-year-old singing and leading worship. Who does God use? Oh, it's like the person who just like got out of rehab. Oh, who does God use? Like, you want a different harvest, both in our church and in our individual life, sow a different seed. Which is the second word I want to drill down into for a hot second. We've got to break up the ground. We've got to have resolve that we're going to use the margin of our lives to seek the Lord, to go after the things that matter most. And then two, we've got to sow seed. God can pour out his rain, but if there's no, no seed there. The same word of God, the same gospel that God has used because it was implanted in people's hearts and has given like so much life to people around, to a region around them is the same one that exists today. This is why we spend three weeks just reminding each other like, hey, be in the scripture, be in the scripture. How are you doing with that? 
because that's how you plant seeds. That's how you plant seeds. You begin to embed in that soil of your heart that you're now breaking up. You're placing in there visions of what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what it is to walk the way of life. You're building in, building, you're planting, sorry, this seed again and again and again. (laughs) There is a, has been said recently by many that even if God were to sort of like pour out his spirit, which I understand is like foreign language to some of us, but to just show up in some remarkable accelerated way and rain down on the fields of our heart, there wouldn't be much to grow there. I say that with no like shame or guilt. I just say like part of first digging up the ground is then going, what am I putting in the ground? What are my rhythms and my practices and my disciplines like in my life? And we need to seek. We need to seek. We need to seek the Lord. When you read the Bible, Moses fell on his face before God. Abraham argued with God. Hannah was so distraught in prayer for God to break through that the priest thought that she was drunk. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Nehemiah fasted and mourned and wept for days when he saw the decline of his generation. Anna and Simeon gave their lives to contending to see the Messiah in their generation. Jesus spent whole nights in prayer. Paul's ministry is basically prayer plus a little bit of suffering. Um, (laughs) Right, Jesus, like praise and those loud cries with like sweats and drops of blood weeping over the city we had some dinners with some friends recently and they were going like something had really disruptive had happened in their life and it was as if it was the most normal thing imaginable one of the people at dinner just said yeah yeah as soon as we found this out like i immediately knew i had to like start fasting and praying i'm like yeah you did like amazing It's like, that's normal Christianity, and I think sometimes when we talk about this stuff, we go, um, oh, that seems a little extreme and a little far. And like, that's just normal New Testament Christianity as we begin to seek the Lord, and part of the way that we actually then, um, we seek after him is by having these sorts of a passion and a zeal towards going after him. You know the story of St. Augustine? St. Augustine was a terrible kid terrible kid and it's basically his mother's prayers that prayed him into the church he called himself a child of tears anybody else in this room like a child of tears i want to honor my um my brother so i won't share too much but some of you know my brother and my brother is a pastor and if any of you knew my brother 20 years ago, you would say, hell to the no, is that kid becoming a pastor? Emphasis on the hell to the no. And one of the few things that I saw of all the things that God did, and my dad's here today, (laughs) he can testify to this, was the prayers, the prayers of my dad and my mom. The tears and the holy yelling and longing for God to move in a way that only God can move. 
brother is a completely different person. Prayers of desperation. There's a kind of covenantal prayer. A kind of earnestness and longing when we look around and we actually see what's happening in our world. And we must resist the temptation to fall into cynicism and to fall into apathy and to let huge swaths of the field that God's given us go fallow. I love this phrase, the clock determines the play. I always try to weave football analogies into this teaching here, and they never quite land, but what's the definition of insanity, right? You keep on doing the same thing, like hoping something will change. I'm insane. Here we go. In a football game, the first part of the game, first two, three, four minutes, five minutes, first quarter even, you're just trying to like figure out what the other coach's game plan is going to be. There's definitely much more of a non-anxious presence in the game in the first quarter. Very different plays are being called. When you're down by only a little bit, and there's two to three minutes left, the kinds of plays you call at the end of the game are completely different. Coaches losing their mind when there's a tight score. You can only get a few plays left because the clock is winding down. The clock determines the play. And so this is not an invitation to fear the culture coming in and destroying our world. It's an acknowledgement like exists over and over and over in the Bible that we are in a place of spiritual decline. Friends, we're losing an entire generation. Please like know me and trust me. I don't preach like this often. Those of you who've been around I struggle with like the fear-mongering preaching that sometimes happens. But we have to acknowledge the ache and despair that exists in a generation right now. Suicide rates are through the roof. We've never seen anxiety like this ever. It is a broken moment. I had a friend who was getting really annoyed at their other friend for posting seemingly every day about what was going on in Palestine, in Gaza. They were like getting frustrated, like, well, they just stopped. There's nothing we can really do. And I'm like, turn it up more. That's not a political statement. It's a, this person is passionately seeing something objectively evil happening, war, and going, Lord, please. And I kept feeling like with every post, it was a cry out for prayer. A cry. I have another friend who just does not stop posting about the dangers of TikTok and technology. No, it's not Sarah. It's somebody else. <laughs> and I love it. They're just obsessed, not with like fear-mongering, with going, please, is someone paying attention to what's happening right now? I went to a conference that a friend of mine put on. Over a thousand people at this conference in Nashville, not a huge number, but a good chunk of people. Influencers, creatives, people who work in the church, people in business. I was the oldest person there. It was amazing. And I'm looking around at this group of mostly Gen Z and young millennials crying out to God for a move in their generation. 
who are rededicating and saying, we are going to, this literal line from this day, which inspired the sermon, was we are going to break up the fallow ground in our heart because the time is now to seek the Lord. I can say, Andrew, the time's always to seek the Lord. What's different? Like, just look around. It's a different sort of moment. And there are different forces than generations before us that are pushing in and inviting us to live some sort of safe, detached, lesser Western life. It's time to seek the Lord. This is the urgent hour of our faith. And so to look out at our city and go, God, would you do it again? It may seem dark. It may seem like there's not a lot of hope. But when people like us, our humble little church here in Providence, take hold of God, when people like us break up those places in our life that have gotten hard and we begin to sow seeds of seeking God and seeds of faith and then begin to pray and covenant with God for rain to come, anything is possible. And so I have an agenda today, and it's an agenda we'll keep talking about over the next three or four weeks. And the agenda is simply to invite you to pray. Pray, start praying now. <laughs> And especially as we move into January and we call the church to pray to prepare for that time of prayer and fasting that we're going to do. And the second is to give. On that card, we laid out a little bit of some of the initiatives and we're going to drill down into these things. But to mess with metaphors for a moment as I close, something that God told our community very clearly years ago, we had the strong sense that God was saying, do not change the channel on what I'm about to do. This sort of do not change the channel on what I've invited you into. There is this ground that you have. I want you to break it up, focus, stay focused on that. And there is this sense that the Lord is inviting us to just simply keep going. But like this field that I gave you, I want you to break up more of this. I want you to press in deeper. I want you to keep going. I don't want you to change the channel and what I've invited you to do. Not changing the channel is about staying faithful because in this cultural moment that I'm describing, Right? The temptations are to either fight back against culture. We're seeing that happen in little corners of the church. The, a very ungodly response. Not fighting on our knees. Or to freeze, to sort of be paralyzed, and to settle in to some sort of dying form of church. And then there is, of course, the fawn. We're going to somehow make our theology match the cultural winds of our day. The fawn over it. But there is, of course, a fourth option which is to be faithful. The field that God has given us and given every church and every generation to break it up, to not just use 25% of it, but use the whole thing. The channel that God tuned us into and said, I want you to be a church that seeks after me with all your whole heart. Don't change it. Don't go for the novel. And so we've, we, we've been trying to do this. And anyone who's been around for the last five or six years, there's all sorts of things we haven't done well and could do better in, but we have tried to remain faithful to a handful of things. And I hope this last like two minutes are going to tie all this together for you. Because in our being faithful to a few areas, we have seen first fruits. Would you say first fruits? Just making sure we're all here. First fruits. We've seen like a little bit of fruit. God, first and foremost, was saying, don't change the channel. Like, don't stop being faithful to just seeking me. 
Be a church that's marked by presence, not by programs. Be a church when people walk in, they sense that God's alive and moving. Be a church where there's small prayer gatherings happening in home churches where people are healed. Be a church where people are inspired to go and serve the poor and live more simply and be radically generous and fight against injustice and to demonstrate and announce the gospel. To not be one of these churches that just chooses justice or chooses evangelism, chooses the Holy Spirit or chooses liturgy, chooses the Bible or chooses seeking after the gifts. I want all of it. Be that church that, was, that looks faithful to the scriptures. Amen, anybody? We want that, right? And so he's like, first and foremost, turn up the temperature. Well, in the last few years, since kind of receiving this word, we have more than just a prayer team. We have a group of dedicated people who are seeking to grow and are putting together this calendar for the next year to help all of us grow. It's been slow, but to grow in like what it means to heal and hear from the Lord and contend for the things that we're called to contend for. It's created an ecosystem where like a nonprofit was born, like Revive New England. It's been an ecosystem where suddenly 40 pastors on the regular on Tuesday around the region are coming to our church in our space to seek God together. We're seeing unity in the city that according to some of the godfathers that exist in Providence, they've never seen before. That's a good news. That's a good news. <laughs> That's a good news. Gosh. We saw this room packed to the brim. I don't know if it's ever been this full since probably when it was, this building was built. Over 500 people crammed in here for a worship gathering with other churches just seven months ago. Many of us still feel like we're like living off the flames of that word, God, you're wanted in our city. God said, don't change the channel. You're a young church when we first started. There was not one single kid. I think Harper was one of the first children in our church, my firstborn. It's like a handful of people actually who came first. Well, now there's like 75 kids. Now there's an entire kid city team that's gonna be ticked at how long the service is going. 45 families actively engaged in the life of our church. There's a family retreat that's happening once a year where people are like, <laughs> there, were two, there were a few folks who found out that they were, they were unable to come to the retreat and heard about one of the talks that Sarah had given and were like, we need that and like bought her dinner and said, would you please come over and give this talk to us around the dinner table? And one of them sent a picture of them. Like just a hunger for what God's doing. God created an ecosystem where a book was born, the book that won like discipleship book of the year for families of Christianity today, right? We've like celebrated Sarah's book. Like God, we asked the Lord, God said, just keep focused on these things that I've told you to stay focused on. Keep breaking up the ground and an ecosystem where these things were born. There's so many things to share, more to share, but we've had 75 people go through Pathway God has said over and over, Andrew, you need to keep drilling down into discipleship. Go slow and steady and let this be a place where people actually grow in the way of Jesus and they don't just get some like pep talk about God and then go on about their day. That even if this church shrinks, it would be a, such a potent community of discipleship. 75 people have gone through pathway in something that's not even a year old commitments that people are making to home church in a way like never before. More people who've gone through Alpha than ever before. 
a men's and women's ministry giving birth, which I swore I would never do a men's and women's ministry. For all sorts of reasons, it's been a good thing, but in part, the confusion about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman is like stronger than ever. And so God raised up people. God raised up and brought to us people as we were asking, Lord, would you bring us people who would lead this? And God brought leaders in to do that and stirred in the hearts of folks who were always already here to do that. Just last week, someone in our community called me and said, Andrew, it's time. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, I'm ready to like take the lead on women's ministry. I'm like, come on. <laughs> There's a lot to say, and I'm out of time. I will give one more. Hope High. God has opened a door at Hope High that I have not seen since we started the church at Reservoir Ave, we're at Reservoir Ave Elementary School. We had the favor of a principal who opened the door with a church that was our sending church, Christ Church, where we had after-school programming and tutoring and refugee care and all this stuff, and we were able to wrap around an entire neighborhood. And we saw, like always, not just the kids in that neighborhood, one of the most at-risk neighborhoods, find life and faith and joy and goodness and people come to Jesus. But we saw so many disenfranchised, apathetic, 20-something hipsters fall in love with Jesus all over again. Amen. We have another opportunity now at Hope High to do this. And so we want to raise money for a mentoring program that we have like a green light to walk through the door and begin to start. We're going to get into all these details and share more specifics, but I wanted to say the part of like not changing the channel was about being faithful and in our faithfulness and just beginning to sow and break up the ground in our community, we already started to see some fruit. This isn't like everything's been awful and might this be our year? Like, nah, it's been slow and steady because there were some things God said, I want you to harvest and you've got to start sowing them now. And for all the ways we weren't as faithful as we could have been or aren't as strong or sharp as we could have been, God still used that 25% of the field and God is inviting us to plow more ground. I got you. <laughs> to plow more ground. So, I'm here to recruit us as a family all over again to pray, to intercede for a move of God in our generation, to break up the ground of our lives to seek him and seek him alone. And an overflow of that throughout history has been radical generosity. And so as we gear up for December 10th to do a big give, to accelerate the vision and to plow more of the field, I hope you'll join us. And on an individual level, are you gonna be that mom or dad that says, you know what? Like, I can watch a show right now. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'm going to trade an hour of Netflix for one hour of intercession for my kids and the next generation. Anybody? I'm going to start crying, so you better start, like, cheering. Are you? <laughs> I came across this. Emily sent me this historical clip of this thing about baptism involving the Knights of Templar. I end here. The church would baptize one of the knights. They would be baptized um, with their sword. But they wouldn't take their sword under the water with them. Instead, they would hold their swords up out of the water as they went down. 
For those of you new to the church and baptism, this is just the way we signify dying to the old and being reborn in Jesus, claiming Jesus as Lord, being born again. And they would hold their swords out of the water while the rest of their body was immersed. It was the knight's way of saying, Jesus, you can have control of me, but you can't have this. Jesus, I'm all yours, but who I am and what I do on the battlefield, how I use the sword, that's not part of the deal. And most of us, unless you're like the Ren Fair type, don't walk around carrying swords. But we still practice this today, do we not? Most of us would hold something else, a wallet, a dream, a platform, our relationship with money, our relationship with someone else. Are you holding anything out of those baptismal waters? I'm just talking to the Christians right now. Are you holding anything out of there? Is there anything you're clinging to? So many of us are so comfortable with Jesus as Savior and not as Jesus as Lord. It's like saying you can have my life, just not this one thing. But we know whatever our heart clings to, that's where our loyalty ends up being. I think most of us in this room sincerely desire to receive from God and to walk in God, walk with God. We want deeper intimacy with him. But it's so difficult to receive when you've got these clenched fists, when you've got all this ground in your life that is unplowed, when you've got all this fallow ground, it's so hard to receive with stagnant faith, with no seed being sown. And so friends, God is looking for ordinary people with extraordinary commitment to do unbelievable things. And so I want to close by praying over you. That if you say, I want to be one of these people, would you close your eyes? Like, if you're one of these people going, Lord, I, I sense the urgency of the hour. God, I want to be used by you for something more than this dead, cold, lame American dream. Maybe you've had this conviction for a while. You've heard me teach sermons like this. Like, yeah, yeah, it's there. And there's just one more thing, one click. God's not looking for this heroic thing in this moment. It's just like that one thing I've been inviting you, that piece of ground that you've just left, un you've just left fallow. And you're ready to just say yes. You're, you're like, God, would you crystallize my discontent? Maybe you're here and you're like, I want to see generations giving their lives to Jesus. There is a harvest that comes when God rains down. He has always been looking for people who are open. And so, Lord, we draw near to you. There is a harvest that is possible. And you're just saying, Lord, put me in. Put me in, coach. Most of us know what it is to plow ground for our career, for the things we want to see happen, for hobbies. Man, but Lord, for you. There's no pressure. <laughs> but if you want to pray this, Father, I just want to pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would release the spirit of prayer over this church. Would you right now just release the spirit of prayer over this church? Just seeking you, wanting to be with you. I pray, Lord, there would be a crystallization of discontent in the heart of this church. 
Father, we bless what you're doing. We love, Lord, how you're moving. We love the fruit that we've seen. And Lord, in the deep rest and relief of the gospel, we say we want more. In the great joy of the gospel, we say we want more, Lord. Pray, Lord, today that prodigal kids would come home to the Lord. They would come home with hearts on fire like that day my brother came home. <laughs> he was like a different kid. That kid had given me the best song fodder. I had written the best angry songs about him, and then he ruined the whole thing. Like, Holy Spirit, would there be more of that? declare just a resurrection of relationships. Lord, those that are in marriages that are hopeless, Lord, that feel like they're in the hopeless state, Lord, would you bring hope and life and resolve to seek you and you alone and be faithful to your ways, Lord? Our church has not been untouched by the divorce epidemic and by the delusion that you need to abandon your family to find yourself, Lord. We renounce that in the name of Jesus. I make no apologies, Lord, for that. Holy Spirit, would you come and heal? Holy Spirit, would you repair the broken friendships? Or would you stir in people a fresh calling? Lord, we hand ourselves to you and pray that you would move. We're asking for a move of God. Make us ready. Prepare our hearts. Stir in us, Lord. So I want to invite you, Lord. Would you, would you team, would you stand? Church, would you stand? And even though we've gone a bit late, I want to save this last few minutes together. To seek after him. And so as we pray, Lord, I want to make room for you. As we pray, Lord, would you break up the ground of the dead things in our life? I ask Holy Spirit, would you come? Maybe this prayer is for you. Maybe this prayer is for your kids, for your neighborhood, for the West Bank, for the break brokenness in our city. The Holy Spirit, would you lead us to pray? Would you lead us to pray?
If you want to respond by coming to the altar to pray, feel free. Lord, we are open and we are here and we are ready, Lord.